These are the names that define our world. The artists who shaped our minds. The rebels who challenged our views. But of all these legends, there is one that stands above all others. I'm sorry, did someone say my name? What's the secret, Max? The secret? I think you just gotta find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. Sharp little guy. He's one of the worst students we've got. Rushmore. I like your nurse's uniform, guy. These are OR scrubs. Oh, are they? Welcome back to Whose Filmography Is It Anyway, folks, where the points are just like a surveillance camera at the 99 cent store. Uh, I am your host, uh, Josh Page, and with me as always, my co-host and friend, Steve Molina. Hello, hello. I'm trying to think of something quirky to say to match the Wes Anderson vibe, but I don't, I don't, I don't got anything. If we were as quirky as Wes Anderson, we would be Wes Anderson, but alas, there is only one. Wes Anderson. Although I'd say Noah Baumbach is probably a Wes Anderson in a little, maybe a little more serious, but he kind of likes the same. He's a very similar person. They, they're cut from the same cloth. They're friends. They wrote movies together. So it makes so sense. That makes a lot of sense. I would also say that Coppola, uh, Sophia, she's in a similar. Well, uh, uh, she's related to Jason Schwartzman. So. So the family it all comes full circle. Six degrees of Wes Anderson. Um, speaking of Jason Schwartzman, um, this week we are covering Rushmore, 1998, the timeless classic where Jason Schwartzman and Bill Murray have a, a feud over a lady. It is one to behold, folks. So with that, um, let's talk about the first time we saw the movie. I'm going to trail off of last week to keep continuity's sake. So I had watched... Wes Anderson's films out of order. My family, I told you, my family had rented Royal Tenenbaums. They thought it was, they thought it was a comedy. Um, it was not a laugh out loud comedy in, in, in that kind of sense. Not for everyone. It makes me laugh sometimes, but um, it's a very different brand of humor. And then years went by. I, I kind of knocked Wes Anderson, got to college and I watched the films out of order. And then once like his style clicked with me, I had gone back. So when I had watched Rushmore, I think I had already seen Fantastic. Oh, no, I had already seen like Moonrise Kingdom. It was already kind of, we were getting kind of later Wes Anderson. So I had kind of gone back. Um, and then I, what I did is I went back from the beginning, kind of what, what, what you and I are doing, watching chronologically. And when I had got to Rushmore, it was just, I think I had just watched it by myself. Um, I think I had found a DVD of it and blind, I think I blind bought it. I think it's the one I have. I found it in like a thrift store or something like a Criterion DVD and I bought it and I watched it. And I just remember feeling very satisfied. Always blind buy movies, but this was one, it was just when I was really getting in to Wes Anderson style. Um, I happened to come across it and watched it. And uh, needless to say, I was pretty delighted. Like you, I didn't watch the movies in order. Um, I think I said last time I watched the Fantastic Mr. Fox on TV in like, I don't know, 2000, 
2009, 2010-ish, I can't remember. Um, it was a long time ago. It was over a decade ago. Leave me alone. A long, long time ago. Yeah, long, long time ago in a house on Long Island somewhere. So far, far away. So far, far away. All the way on Long Island. <laughs> um, but after I watched Fantastic Mr. Fox, I watched, uh, I think, Royal Tenenbaums next. And then, I, I don't know, I was DVR. I, like, I would literally go on the TV Guide website and type in the movie and record with my DVR, like some of these movies. I don't remember where on the list Rushmore fell, but I think I watched it around like 2010, I wanna say 2011, when I was in high school. I don't know, for some reason it didn't hit me as hard. I'll save my real final thoughts for later, but honestly, it didn't really hit me when I first watched it in high school, but it hit me this time. But um, um, yeah, I do wanna, we'll save that for later. But uh, before we get into the movie, should I read off some pre-production? I would love production in general. I, I, I have a couple notes. My well, I, I have the the MDB trivia pulled up. I have some notes here as well. So yes, you start us off, and I'll chime in when I uh, when I need to. So let's start off with a simple one. This one is this movie is Touchstone. Did you know that? Yeah, it's it's, funny. it's a Disney movie. Yeah, it's funny. I almost forgot that Touchstone was even a thing because I feel like it was so present when we were children. And yeah. it kind of disappeared. Um, and it's funny seeing these movies on like Disney Plus, like random movies, like 10 Things I Hate About You, and like seeing these very non Disney friendly kind of movies pop up. And then you realize, like, oh, Touchstone is bought by Disney. And so you look at movies from Touchstone and you're like, oh. I don't think they bought Touchstone. I think they owned, te- like, they created Touchstone to make they've always, Oscar movies. They've always been connected? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. I, I think that they... it was a subsidiary. I could be wrong, but I think it was a subsidiary created by Disney. Kind of like, you know, Fox had Searchlight. You know, they had like their own like good movie branch. Um, and not making the generic stuff that the main studio would make. See, I, I just assume Disney is a giant Pac-Man. That's um, just wampa, kind wampa, of... Wampa. Exactly. Every single... <laughs> Every single potentially profitable production company, I feel like Disney's just coming by and just. Well, now I think outside of Bottle Rocket, Disney owns every Wes Anderson movie. Which is kind of bananas when you think about it. It is. I, you know, when you think about Disney, you wouldn't think about the people who f- would find a home in under their umbrella. But like someone like Taika Waititi has made his past couple movies at disney like including jojo rabbit i mean that was created at fox first but disney bought it and released it and now he's doing ragnarok and uh you know the thor sequel and um he's going to be doing a star wars movie he's he's really moving up in the disney empire and like john favreau you're like you wouldn't think john favreau john favreau john favreau but you know, you wouldn't think of him as like a Disney, you know, you're not watching Swingers and going, this guy's going to find his home at Disney. But- uh, I mean, if you watch Elf and Iron Man, they're not far off from kind of what Disney is becoming. Where Iron Man is Disney. That's what I'm, right. Well, now it is. Yeah. It's- but he's made his past what? Like, I don't know, three, four movies there now? Uh, I don't know if that includes Chef, which I think might be his best movie, but that's beside I don't remember if they made it or not. Anyway, 
despite that, um, I'm on a little tangent, but I, Disney owns good. this movie. That's my point. Uh, this movie world. had a nine to ten million dollar budget. The numbers are a little fudgy here. Like even the box office is up for debate. It's seventeen point <laughs> yeah. one to nineteen point one million. That's so good. it made its money back, which is more than you could say about Wes Anderson's first movie. This is true. It wasn't as much a bomb as you would have thought, but <laughs> uh, it was written and directed by Wes Anderson, but also the another writer was Owen Wilson. You know, oh, really? The, the team was back. I I don't understand where Owen Wilson is because he also wrote the Royal Tenenbaums with Wes Anderson too. So like, where why why doesn't he write more scripts? I don't I don't get it. Um, no, yeah, I don't understand either. Um, I have a note here based on their their writing. It said uh, Wes and Owen's intent with the film was to create their own slightly heightened reality, all dull children's book. Uh, that's the quote. So it's interesting that they work together in this writing sense that they have these visions together. So it's, um, uh, I can see it though. Um, and also I have, I had said last week, um, we would see the beginning of like the Wes Anderson super friends, uh, all these people who would work with him over and over again. And this yeah, is he's slowly Murray. accumulating. Yeah. He's the, the snowball effect. And this is, I said, I, where, how did, um, when did Bill Murray enter the picture? And I actually, I have the note here when he first joined. Um, I have that too, but you go for it. Tell your... Well, I don't know if it's the same note. It says, when Bill Murray had first read the script, he thought it was so fantastic that he said he would do it. He wanted to do it so badly, he would do it for free. Um, so my guess is he and uh, Wes Anderson rubbed shoulders in a good way. Uh, they were chummy right from the Well, um, I could tell you about their first encounter. Uh, so yes when uh what's it called the part was actually written with bill murray in mind but wes anderson obviously couldn't conceive of bill murray being in his movie right but uh the script was actually passed along to bill murray because the producer was friends with someone close to bill murray the script got to him and uh after murray read the script which you said he wanted to do it, but Wes Anderson had no idea about that. So Bill, he gets a phone call from Bill Murray and doesn't mention the script at all, but they end up talking about the Kurosawa movie Redbeard for an hour. <laughs> like Murray just brings up the movie Redbeard and Wes Anderson, who had never seen Redbeard, hears about it for an hour and... <laughs> At the end of the conversation, he finally said, yeah, I'll do the movie. I love it. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Those, 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 those stories with Bill Murray are insane because it's just, some of them are so outrageous. You're like, this can't be true. And then some of them are just so oddly specific and funny here. Like, it almost has to be true, you know? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about uh, filming. It happened from November to February 1999. Uh, 98, sorry. Uh, shot entirely in Houston, Texas. Though Wes Anderson did consider shooting in England or in the city of Detroit. Because uh, he wanted like versatile environments. Uh, but not only did he shoot in Houston where he grew up, the school of Rushmore was actually the school he went to. 
St. John, oh. John School. Really? Yeah. Like, he went there. Oh, that's cool. His alma mater. Wow. Very, uh, very meta. And the school that, uh, the other school that Max ends up going to, Grover he- Cleveland High, that school is uh, Lamar High School, and it is directly across the street from the other school. So funny. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's not as dingy of a location as it, they would have you think. Like, Wes Anderson made the rooms in school look a little dingier sure. than it actually is. You know, Although, I don't really know. I've never been there. Right. <laughs> I have not either. I'll let you know if I ever visit. Uh, the costume designer, like this was a strange production from what I saw, but the costume designer, Karen Patch, kept like all she had was an 18 wheeler. That was it. Literally in the 18 wheeler were all the costumes for the entire movie, a washing machine, a sewing machine, ironing boards and a dryer like and her sewing team was like in that trailer as well. That's amazing. I love those kinds of stories. So ridiculous. Oh man. Um, let's talk casting. So it, it there were four rounds of casting to find Max. Um <laughs> yeah, I just read a, a bananas number that they had auditioned him. Um they had auditioned a, a lot of people. Uh one thousand and eight hundred teenage <laughs> teenagers. Uh, were auditioned from the United States and, uh, and England for that for that part. Wes Anderson said that him and his team were having this crazy idea that uh, you know maybe Max would be the kind of kid who would put on a fake English accent if they found someone in England. That was going to be their plan. Like, just throw him in and say, "Yeah, Max has a fake English accent." Like oh. he's just that kind of guy. <laughs> it's like ridiculous. It's outrageous. But this. But is... uh, Jason Schwartz was the last person that they actually like he was about to give up and Jason Schwartzman was the last person to audition um, he came to audition wearing a prep school blazer which sported a Rushmore patch that he had made himself so I guess <laughs> he knew what to do he knew what he was doing he was 17 years old while filming so he probably got the job at like 16 it's amazing it is amazing but hey I guess being in the Coppola family helps you with the uh, knowing what producers and directors are looking for. Six degrees of Coppola. And apparently on set, Wes Anderson was so nervous uh, working with Bill Murray that he would literally whisper his instructions to him because he didn't want anyone to like hear what he was saying. He wanted like, he didn't want to be embarrassed. That's so funny. Yeah, according to Bill Murray, he disliked uh, Schwartzman's personality during their first meeting, but he eventually warmed up to him while they worked together. So that's the note that I had just read. But they, I guess Bill Murray has this reputation of all different sorts where he's just a specific way. I guess he can intimidate a lot of people. Um. <laughs> yeah, there are some stories about him uh, on set. Like he, he, the thing is, from what I can surmise, again, I have no like knowledge or proof of this, but he kind of seems like the person who can sniff out if he's on a strong director or a weak director set. And right. if he senses weakness, he's going to take over. Right, yeah. I've definitely, I, yeah, I, you can you can kind of feel that vibe with him because he just likes to go to the beat of his own drum. And in cases like this, 
I mean, they clearly worked well together. They I guess they built a they, they obviously built a relationship off this movie, but I guess it worked out. <laughs> well, well, I have a hunch. I'm usually pretty good with these things. Um, a note I found funny is uh, Bill Murray had genuinely found the actors who played his sons Keith and Ronnie McCauley so annoying. <laughs> much like their screen characters that many of the scenes where he lashed out at them were uh with insults were actually improvised um so i find that <laughs> hilarious that in this moment bill murray's channeling, he's channeling real anger towards these children that was i guess left in the film that were they used the takes i mean i don't know they look annoying um <laughs> some influences for the movie were apparently chinatown Harold Maud and The Graduate, which does not shock me at all. Um, I could see all, I mean, I can see Chinatown, uh, no, I'm sorry. I could see Harold and Maud and The Graduate, but Chinatown. Um, yeah, that one I don't really get as much. I'm just going off what Wes Anderson said, but like you said, Harold and Maud I get immediately because it's the younger kid hooking up with an older woman, though not Maud's age old. You know, like, yeah. And it's similar. I mean, it's similar that whole the the whole scandal of the graduate. It's just that it feels that it's innocent, but it's scandalous. Like you know what I mean. Like it has that same kind of yeah. Um, the graduate risque I mean, feel to it. Not to say too much, but I rewatched the Royal Tenenbaums already, and there's literally shots in that movie that are taken from the graduate. You know, even in this movie, I think I put notes in the in the synopsis where like there are some graduate moments throughout all of his movies yeah it's got to be i always have this fear that i would make a movie that would i would have a scene exactly in my head and then all of a sudden like someone would be like hey this looks feels a lot like this movie and i'd be like oh shit like subconsciously i channeled this movie i've seen so many times that it yeah but i don't think that's a problem you know? No, and if you do it in your own way, that's fine. And I've ne I've never n known Wes Anderson to be someone who pawns. I'd have to watch it with those shots in mind, but I've never known him to be someone who pawns or apes someone's style um, in a way that feels like he's ripping off. But again, I'd have to watch to really compare. But I mean, we'll uh, we'll get to those notes when we get there. Yeah. All right. Uh, you ready to get into the movie? I uh, I was born ready. In front of a red curtain is a family portrait. We will come to know that it is Herman Bloom, Bill Murray, with his wife and two kids. While we do not know the characters from, from the painting, we can surmise that the family is very unhappy. Not a single person is smiling, and Herman is placed further away smoking. The painting vanishes and a blue curtain opens to reveal the sign of a private school, Rushmore. We did it, guys. We made it to the school already. We made it. We made it. Panning through a blue painted classroom, we see a math lesson taking place. To the side of the teacher is an untouched equation. The teacher said he put it there as a joke, as it is the hardest geometry question on earth. Anyone who solves it would never have to open another math book again because he has that power. He can just say, hey, you're never going to open another math book again if you answer this question. It's a lot, lot of power. A lot, a of, lot of power. In that equation. I, I don't know. He offered that to the whole class, too. So it's like, it's a lot of power you got there. And just because like, they don't have to learn math doesn't mean that they don't have to know math. You know, whatever. The students talk amongst themselves, excited by this prospect. 
The teacher, however, calls on Max Fisher, Jason Schwartzman, to give the equation a go. Max puts down his newspaper and smugly asks, I'm sorry, did someone say my name? Very smug. I love it. He literally, his face was just like, <laughs> no one could see what I'm doing, but he it's really, very smug. He really sells it. Max takes a sip of his tea and goes to the board, solving the equation with relative ease. The class cheers. The cheers fade from, cla- from the classroom to a church. The classroom was just a daydream. The applause were for the industrialist, Herman Bloom, who is now at the pulpit. The speech is short and sweet. You guys have it real easy. I never had it like this where I grew up. But I send my kids here because the fact is, you go to one of the best schools in the country, Rushmore. Now for some of you, it doesn't matter. You were born rich and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. Thank you. Max is enthralled by the speech, taking notes in a Bible. As the speech concludes, Max is the only one who applauded. Dr. Nielsen Guggenheim, Brian Cox, from Succession, man. This is how long he's been in the business. This is it. He's a good man. He's a great actor. I saw him. I actually saw him on Broadway. Oh, really? He played uh, Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson? Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, it was was good. That's wonderful. He's a great actor. I'm glad he's. he's... uh, I'm glad he's finally like I've as always, big as he is. I was gonna say I always felt like he was underrated, but Succession's finally giving him a steady success that I feel like he's needed. Uh, Doctor Nielsen Guggenheim walks Herman out of his car. Max, with his friend Dirk Mason Gamble, approaches Herman to compliment the speech. There's an awkward nature to their first encounter, but Herman is impressed with Max. Guggenheim stops Herman, saying, "He's one of the worst students we've got." <laughs> Max's extracurricular activities are then flashed. Max is the editor of the school paper, president of the French club, Russia in the model UN, vice president to the stamp and coin club, debate team captain, lacrosse team manager, president of the calligraphy club, founder of astronomy club, captain of the fencing team, track and field, JV decathlon, second choral choir master, bombardment society founder, Kung Fu club, yellow belt, Trap and Skeet Club founder, president of the Beekeepers, Yankee Racers founder, play director, and Piper Cub Club with 4.5 hours logged. That's quite the uh, extracurricular list there. (laughs) It's giving me anxiety. Um, I will say, just to note, while you were talking, I noticed Anderson's signature shots, uh, the overheads of him in in the notebook and whatever, but that scene, when they're going over all of his uh, extracurricular activities, when they have them flashing in the corner, that's very much It's very Wes Anderson. It cuts to the center frame of just like, w- whether a character is on the side or whatever, these very comical things are happening while the print, the text is printed boldly on screen. Watching um, Bottle Rocket to this is astounding. It, just it, how much of his style is so 
like like I don't know where it came from because Bottle Rocket had like little hints but this movie is like you can tell from the beginning it is a Wes Anderson movie this Bottle Rocket maybe stupid. not so much but yeah he was still finding his footing but this movie is like oh he found he, it he hits he, on all centers on all cylinders um, like he found what he wants to go for and he just does it in this movie yeah um it it reminded me kind of the jump from following to uh memento in the nolan works but i um, think that the difference there is that nolan in his second movie hits more thematic beats than than film uh beats if you know what i mean i understand what you're saying you know um, wes anderson in this movie solidifies like who he is where his nolan, style. i think takes a little bit longer but yeah i don't know you, uh, um yeah, once Nolan and, and Wally Fister and Hans Zimmer started getting in their groove, they kind of found their own thing. But with Wes Anderson, it was kind of just... Um, I understand what you mean, the, the style in terms of story, the, the storytelling. Because with Memento, it's like the story took itself um, in a, direct, a very serious direction right away. Where with this, it's kind of... His stories can bounce back and forth, but it's always about this trademark um, look that he has. And he completely nails it with this. And that reference, that first scene is right noted this, this time. I was like, oh, he's really, he's, he knows exactly what he's doing here. From the curtain opening, or yeah. just like the first shot, although the first shot was a little Twin Peaks-esque, I think. But yeah, I don't know. I haven't watched Twin Peaks. You really should get on that. So in that, just another note, the shot of, it's the shot of Max sitting on a go-kart wearing a pair of goggles, which is on the UK DVD and on the Criterion, Criterion DVD. It's a rec- uh, recreation of a photograph taken by a 1909 French photographer, Jacques-Henri Lartigue, a child prodigy who started taking pictures at the age of six. But the two people go-karting in the background in that scene while he's sitting there looking to the camera, uh, the two people go-karting in the background are Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. But so uh, also you mentioned the poster like the hand-drawn one yeah i love that that. was actually drawn by wes anderson's brother eric chase anderson he does all the artwork for his movies like oh really yeah i've always had this very childlike sense of i don't know um they just look like old-fashioned the artwork on everything uh that's included with his movies they're like sophisticated yet child-esque i don't know yeah, and i mean that, that in a very i mean that as a compliment i absolutely. mean that as an insult um there's something about it, it almost feels like from they'd be from a children's book that we would have grown up with you know what i mean no that's a better way of putting what i was trying to say it literally looks like you know you not exactly but like, like you open like a good book and you're just like this is the cover like this is the art you would find in it this is like a chapter art yeah it reminds me like kind of a like Harry a, Potter uh, under yeah, 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 yeah. above each chapter was like a little piece of art. I love that. That's so good. Um, but I digress. I read curtain is seen again on the curtain is a light, which simply reads September. Max is sitting in Guggenheim's office. The blocking of this sequence speaks volumes. Max is seated, seated in like a psychologist. He's on a single chair with fingers placed together. Guggenheim, meanwhile, is on the couch with his dog. While the perception is that Max is in charge, Guggenheim does not feel threatened. Guggenheim tells Max 
he is being put on sudden death academic probation. This scene reminded me of Succession. Just this is oh, just the, yeah. the humor in which it plays and Brian Cox being like this, you know, this mean person. Although was, he's not being mean in this. No, place. it's just who he is. He just del- that's his delivery. He's so yeah. good at doing that. Um, Max asks what that entails. It entails that if you fail another class, you'll be asked to leave Rushmore. Max, trying to get the advantage, says he is willing to stay on for a postgraduate year. Rushmore does not offer such a thing. Max then asks if Guggenheim remembers how he got into Rushmore. Max wrote a one-act play about Watergate in second grade, which got him a scholarship. Max, walking with Dirk, is pissed about the probation. But rather than try to get his grades up, Max simply states that he will pull some strings at administration. This kid's got some balls. (laughs) Like you, you said, smug. It's really a lot of balls. Max is then at the backgammon club. While he plays the game, he's told that Rushmore will be teaching Japanese the following year and getting rid of Latin. Max has been trying to get rid of Latin for the last five years, as it is, he states, a dead language. While playing, he is also reading Diving for Sunken Treasure. I just want to stop. Like, I've noticed with this movie, like, I feel like this movie was the setup for... Uh aquatic life like i don't know just his fascination with fish and uh just underwater i guess in general he if he if 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 wes anderson wanted to connect his universes max could have been part of the life aquatic mission like that's how well he fits into that kind of lifestyle yeah i just feel like in this movie he got in his mind like underwater and I don't know. It took him an extra movie to like really run with the idea. Yeah, I see where you're going. Uh, yeah, I just think maybe like James Cameron, uh, you know, with the Titanic book, it got in his brain, and then it just he ran with it. <laughs> it became something. While playing, he's also reading dive, "Diving for Sunken Treasure." In the book, he first in the book he finds a handwritten note. When one man, for whatever reason, has the opportunity to lead an extraordinary life. He has no right to keep it to himself. Enthralled by the quote, Max tracks down the previous owner of the book, Rosemary Cross, Olivia Williams. He is instantly infatuated as she reads to her first grade class. The school day has come to a close and the parents are lining up to pick up their children. Max is in Dirk's mother's convertible. She's looking at Max in a strange way. She really was. It was like a weird, like, sexual (laughs) way. And I'm like, I, I... I don't know. It was weird. (laughs) Um, Max hands her his card. He then sees Herman and approaches him. Max stands at Herman's window. The Herman never fully breaks. Herman then asks Max, what's your secret, Max? You seem to have it all figured out. Max responds, I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to rush more. As he drives away, Herman asks his kid if Max is invited to their party. They reply crassly, and Herman grabs one of their faces. Literally just grabs it and shakes it. <laughs> like but, you said. Uh, his reply, like Max's reply, is very telling that, you know, I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's Rushmore. This kid wants to fail at classes he wants that post year you know he clearly doesn't want to leave Rushmore right right and that's part of what this whole the coming of age it's kind of part of what this whole thing's about the learning to let go and moving on and 
there's a lot of that, but it's done in very subtle, awkward, and funny ways. Max is then at the barbershop. As his hair gets cut, it becomes apparent that his father is the, is the barber, Bert Fisher, Seymour Castle. Max tells his father that maybe he is spending too much time starting clubs. He thinks it would be prudent not to study more, but to focus on getting chicks, as that is all anyone cares about. And that is the truth. It was, uh, I don't know, that line was just weird to me, but I guess it also sets up the rest of the movie. Absolutely. Because by this point, he already saw Rosemary. Like, right. He knows that he wants to focus on women because he wants to focus on this one woman. Right. Rosemary's sitting on the bleachers, taking out a cigarette. Before she can light it, Max sneaks up and lights it for her. Max then whips out a book and sits on the ed- the other end of the bleachers. Rosemary compliments his hat. He then plays coy, asking her about smoking, then about her schooling. She went to Harvard, writing a thesis on Latin American economic policy, which I don't understand. Like, you're a first grade teacher and you have to write something that complicated? Is she a teacher for anything else or is it just... No, it was just first grade. Like, literally every time Bill Murray comes by, he sees her with the first graders. Every time we see Max, she's with the first graders. So we can assume just, yeah. that's all she teaches. I didn't know if there was any any dialogue about anything. But you see my point? She went to yeah. Harvard, wrote a thesis on Latin American economic policy. You're telling me she's a first grade teacher? Hey, she found her, uh, her niche, you know? She all found right. it. <laughs> I, I don't buy it. <laughs> Latin American economic policy. Max says Harvard is his backup school. <laughs> tough critic, tough guy. I love it. That's a backup. The conversation switches to Latin. Rosemary is sad that it will no longer be taught in the school as all romantic languages stem from it. That was all Max needed to hear. He gets petitions going and speaks to the school board. Within a few days, he saves Latin which is ironic because he's the one who got it abolished in the first place. (laughs) Guggenheim punishes him by posting on the school bulletin that Latin will be mandatory for grades 7 through 12, thanks to Max Fitcher. Really got him. Really got him. Well, yeah. If you know how to... What's it called? That's just going to piss off your fellow classmates. The fact that you just gave them so much more work. They got to learn a whole new language because of you. Absolutely. Herman and Max continue to bond at the Rushmore wrestling match. Max buys Herman popcorn and asks him about his past, mainly about Vietnam and if he was, quote, in the shit. Quick note, the line where he asked if he was in the shit in Vietnam, um, apparently the line that I was in the shit was voted as number 56 of the 100 greatest movie lines by Premiere in 2007. That's funny. Oh. I know that was over a decade ago, but it's funny. I had never thought of it when watching it that that would have been a notable line, let alone the notable line from this movie. But it is, it is funny. Yeah. It does stand out. Yeah, I was in the shit. (laughs) It is there that Max lies and tells Herman that his father is a brain surgeon. Herman offers Max a job, but but he declines. I guess the following scene, Herman's loneliness is perceived. As he sits at the side of the pool at his son's birthday party, his kids do not care he exists. And worse, he watches his wife feed another man food. Like, right in front of him, too. I don't understand how, why she got so pissed later on when 
she's doing shit like this. It's so funny. Jumping in the pool, he stays underwater as long as he can, which is, again, from The Graduate. That's, like, directly out of The Graduate. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's... And also, yeah. just a behind-the-scenes thing, they actually filmed that, like, pool dive at night. Oh, really? Yeah, and Wes Anderson had speakers put at the bottom of the pool so that he can, like, talk to people. Oh, that's really uh, intricate. I had no idea. Yeah. Max visits Rosemary in her classroom to tell her about Latin coming back. She is impressed. As the two feed the fish, Rosemary brings up that she had a husband, Edward Appleby, Owen Wilson, though I don't think we ever see him. No. He's credited um, as uh, Edward Appleby. I don't know why, but he got credited for it. Maybe they shot stuff with him that they later cut. I guess, maybe. Uh he passed away about a year ago. He also went to Rushmore, which is why she teaches there now. Which, again, like, I don't get it. You're, whatever. I, your degree doesn't match first grade teacher. I don't get it. <laughs> Max shares that his mother has also passed. She died when he was seven. Feeding the fish has given Max a new idea. He goes to visit Herman in his office to get a loan to build an aquarium for Rushmore. Max has not spoken to the administration about the plans yet. Max wants $35,000. Herman gives him $2,500. What a deal. Although, I, that's still impressive. He just met this kid and he's given him $2,500. I, I wish I could get $2,500. The kid's got balls. Um, Max, and Rose yeah. <laughs> Max and Rosemary are now sitting across from one another in the library. Though Max does not seem to be doing any work. He is simply staring at Rosemary. Finally, she says, has it ever crossed your mind that you are too young for me? Max replies, it has crossed my mind that you might consider it a possibility. Max insists that they are just friends, though he plans to change that. It is opening night for Max's school play, a stage adaptation of Serpico. Very appropriate and great production design. I mean, that is an incredible way of putting it. It was great production <laughs> design. The way he had oh, that model train going behind him. Oh, that's so... Yeah. Very Wes Anderson, but it's also one of those things with that made me think, like, what if his school did that? It probably doesn't cost that much money. <laughs> but, no, absolutely. Um, an altercation breaks out backstage as Max tells his actor that he forgot his line. Max isn't pissed that the actor forgot the line, but the actor feels the line isn't important. The actor punches Max in the face. The play ends to applause, which crescendo as Max takes to the stage for his bow. After the play is over, Bert comes over to congratulate his son. He wants to know if Max wants to celebrate. Max tells his father that there is already a celebration for cast and crew only. This is a lie. Herman took Max, Rosemary, and Dr. Peter Flynn, Luke Wilson, to a fancy restaurant. Max, with Herman's permission, is drinking whiskey and is very volatile. Lambasting against Rosemary for bringing Flynn to an invitation-only dinner. What's more, he is wearing scrubs. He's not wearing a tie. <laughs> not wearing a tie. Herman wants to get the check as Max continues to embarrass himself in front of Rosemary. The next day, Herman is climbing a fence and sneaking into school property. He has been sent to talk to Rosemary on Max's behest, but Rosemary believes she can no longer see Max. Herman and Rosemary formally introduce themselves at this point. Meanwhile, Max is waiting to break ground for his new aquarium. 
which is right on the school's only baseball diamond. The event is a complete disaster. Rosemary does not show up, but Guggenheim does, changing Max across the field. Back in the school, we do not hear the conversation, but see Guggenheim yell at Max with the board. Max has tears in his eyes. He has been expelled from Rushmore. Which honestly seems like a fair punishment. If you're not uh, going to tell the administration you're building a fucking aquarium. I love it. Um, I just want to make a note. He's going through the scenes here. Um, when he's wearing, I guess he, when he's making the deal with Bill Murray, and he's wearing a hard hat, Max. It made me realize that I don't know how many different hats he wears in this movie. But when he specifically is wearing hats, it's always very noticeable because they're never just normal hats. Like the white construction hats, the red beret, it's like he's very, um, he just really stands out. He's really just going for this look that he wants. Well, considering he wears a blazer for most of this movie, he needs to find some way to express himself. Oh, yeah. Green Curtain, October. Max is starting his first day at Grover Cleveland High School. The class walls, unlike the comforting blue of Rushmore's are painted white. There are also more students. Max asks his teacher to say a few words. Max wanted everyone to know that he is not elitist, though he's still wearing a blazer. He also says he wants to start a fencing club, which is not elitist at all. Come on, guys. Max on the school payphone. This is the pre-cell phone era days, guys. This is when you actually had to, like, call on a payphone in the school. I love it. Uh, Max on the payphone calls Herman about Rosemary. Herman says she does not want to see him again. The phone call is abruptly ended as Max did not have a phone pass. Which, did your school, like, did your school have a phone pass? I've never even heard of a phone pass. No. Like, outside of this movie, I've never even heard of a phone pass. I think there were bathroom passes. I've... I had those in school. I just never had a phone. Pass. Nah, that seems strange to me. Uh, phones were just frowned upon in school. <laughs> well, they had to be mounted to a wall. So, I mean, there were pay phones in my middle school that kids used, but. No, by the time. Yeah. Know. No, at this point, cell phones had just started really peak. I started to, to make appearances, but. The phone call is abruptly ended as Max did not have a phone pass. With a quick cut, Herman is seen again hopping the school fence. Though this time he is less ashamed, Herman dunks a basketball on a first grader, which is not, cla- <laughs> not classy. He is there to see Rosemary. Max bikes to Rushmore. In the trees is Mangus Buckham, Stephen McColl, who is laughing at Max's misfortune. Yeah. To seem cool, Max tells Buchan he is... He was expelled for the aquarium and getting a hand job from Dirk's mom. The reason, the reason he came to the school was to make up with Rosemary, which he does by showing her the diving book. Rosemary says that Max reminds her of her dead husband. There's a montage showing Max is back on top. He's friendly with Herman and Rosemary, getting better grades, though still a C minus. It's really not. He shouldn't be that proud. Uh, he's literally doing backflips at a pep rally and even putting on a new play. His new star will be Margaret Yang, Sarah Tanaka, who seems to like Max. While this is going on, Herman stops by, stops by Rosemary's house. They, they put down the carrots and they decide to take a walk, but Dirk sees them. 
Dirk standing in front of Herman's car says, quote, I know about you and the teacher in a very omen way. It, it was literally a demonic. He's staring like point blank at Herman I, I in love front it. of the car. It's outrageous. It is outrageous. It's funny. Yeah. Dirk spits on the car and walks away. At this point, Buchan tells Dirk what Max, uh, what Max said about getting a hand job from his mom. <laughs> Pissed, Dirk writes a formal yet curt letter to Max telling him about Herman and Rosemary, quote, giving each other hand jobs. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is, the, this is the kind of like awkward humor that like it really works. This is like the pre, the, just that, those interactions were like a precursor to Moonrise Kingdom. Absolutely. Of just like the bold innocence of youth, I guess, you know, like they're giving Absolutely, each other yeah. hand jobs. They're probably doing more than giving each other hand jobs. Or but maybe just, they were like, I don't know. It's like despite this. Despite the fact it's like they're so aggressive about it, like they're so hung up on this, you know? Mm hmm. And like they talk about it in a cold, quirky, just like deadpan way. It's like they're giving each other hand jobs. I don't know. Just the tone is very like Wes Anderson. Like you said, it's a good precursor. It would it only gets better from there, those kinds of moments um, as the movies go. It is the dead of night. Herman emerges from Rosemary's house, skipping to his car. As he gets in, he notices Max in the back smoking. Max points out that it is 2 a.m. and wants to know, how was she, Herman? I bet good. Although I wouldn't know because I never screwed her. Herman tells Max he a fell line of questioning. <laughs> no easy way to answer that one. It's that blunt dialogue that's so it's I don't know, it's so straightforward. It's hilarious. Um, Herman tells Max that he fell in love with Rosemary. Max sharply replies, he fell in love with her first. Again, going back to like adults acting like children, this is a very funny example of just I mean, Bill Murray's an actual adult here and and you know Schwartzman's a little younger, but they're both still acting like adults, and yet when they argue, they sound just like children. It sounds like two five-year-olds. I think you pointed it out in an earlier podcast. I, I it would have had to have been last week, but there's like an arrested development within the Wes Anderson world where the adult, what you said was like the adults talk like children. Yeah. But I think it's that everyone talks on an even playing field. There's like an arrested development at the age of like 17 for all of Wes Anderson's characters where like right. literally all, no one is an adult. Everyone talks to each other in like a mean, <laughs> funny way. Like a, they're just incredibly a immature. Blunt, yeah. In a, in a blunt, immature way. That's how people yeah. interact. It's very straightforward. There's no really reading between the lines. It's kind of exactly how they feel, and it sounds hurtful, but it's like you can't help but laugh. How was uh, she, Herman? Oh, I love it. <laughs> it reminded me of uh, that line specifically. Just reminded me of like Rick and Morty, where uh, the dog is. Where are my testicles? Summer? Where are my testicles? Summer. <laughs> <laughs> oh it's, shit! Uh, it's outrageous. Um, Max begins his warpath. First going to Rosemary's classroom and shouting, I just want to thank you for ruining my life. Max then burns a pile of leaves on the front lawn of Rushmore, all the while flipping off Guggenheim. Max then tells Mrs. Bloom about Herman's affair over sandwiches. Herman is then seen checking into a hotel indefinitely. In the hotel room as Herman eats, bees begin to swarm. Max has planted them. 
The childishness of Herman and Max escalate. Herman runs over Max's bike. Max, in turn, cuts Herman's brakes. It ends as Herman tells the police about Max, who is arrested at school. Max's dad posts bail, but Max's ire turns towards Rosemary. He goes to Rushmore to talk to Guggenheim, but is first assaulted by Dirk's friends. Max says he never said he got a handjob from Dirk's mom. Max offers up pictures of Herman and Rosemary to Guggenheim, but Guggenheim says it is too late. Rosemary has already quit. Max explodes, not understanding why he would let her go. As the focus narrows in on a painting of Churchill, Max and Guggenheim's shadows are seen fighting. I just want to point out how funny that, like, just even that short little scene was. Max is literally there to, like, bring pictures to get Rosemary fired. And then he, he, like, he fights Guggenheim because Guggenheim let her go. It's like, you were there to let her, like, to make sure she goes. What did you think was going to happen? Yeah, he's, um, again, it's that childish mentality of just not understanding, just being so enraged you're acting upon your feelings, you know? Yeah, it's the childish volatility. It, you know, this happens numerous times throughout the book, throughout the movie where he tries so hard to get one thing, but then when he gets it, he is like, no, I don't want it, you know, or like, I shouldn't have done that. Like, that's the point of this movie. It's to, you know, I guess wish what, wish better. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's and it it plagues the whole mood of not just this movie, but like I said, like like what would happen later. Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. Max goes to see Rosemary, who is in the midst of packing up her classroom. He tries to kiss her, but she throws him away. Rosemary shifts the dynamic completely. She asks Max what he thought was going to happen. Were they going to have sex in the classroom? As she keeps talking about her sexual experience, he feels betrayed. The image of purity he held her in has been shattered. His lowest point comes when Buchan punches Max in the face. Dirk, just watching, does not offer to help Max up. Max that, Sorry to go back. Like What yeah, happened yeah. with Rosemary is exactly what we were talking about, too. Like Not that she's actually going to have sex with him, but she's like, trying like she turns the dynamic by like acting like she would fuck him on the table right and and by doing that he was like taken aback because he like he's asking for something without understanding what he's asking for he doesn't realize how how unprepared he actually is for that kind of a relationship he's going yeah that's it he's unprepared for the act like for the reaction that he's actually going to get. Like he doesn't think he holds as much sway as he does. And then when it hits him in the face, when he does something, it rebounds and he acts surprised that it rebounds. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very, that's a very human emotion. Like I said, like we had said it with bottle rocket. It's like this, his characters feel flawed in how human they are. And that's one of those very realistic um, character traits of someone having expectations until they finally get uh they kind of they're they're getting kind of starting to get what they think they want and then they realize that they don't even know what they want and um that whole scene kind of plays out exactly where those mindsets the childish mindset and the adult mindset clash completely um max is at his mother's grave herman shows up per max's instructions max has planned to jump herman from the tree but forgot 
Besides, what is the point? Rosemary loves Herman. Max walks away. I, lo- I just, I love that moment when uh, Bill Murray looks at the tree. He's like, yeah, they probably would have mauled me or something. Like, he's like, <laughs> they probably would have killed me. <laughs> I love it. His deadpan delivery here. I mean, that's classic Bill Murray, but yeah. he, he does it so well here. November, blue curtain. Max is cutting hair alongside his father. He no longer goes to school and will not see any visitors. Rosemary and Herman are also seen eating separately and alone. They too have ended things. December, red curtain. Bert tries to ask Max if he wants to think about going back to school. Max has given up at this point, calling his old ideas delusions. Dirk enters the barbershop. The two make up. Max then goes to visit Guggenheim at the hospital. Recognizing Max's voice in a coma, Guggenheim for the first time in 10 days speaks, simply saying, what do you want? (laughs) Honestly, that was another hilarious point. I know, like, in the down moments, Wes Anderson is able to find the comedy. This man is literally in a coma, and he recognizes Max's voice, and simply asking, what do you want from me? <laughs> it's hilarious. I don't know how he does it. He turns a serious moment very funny, very quick. Oh, man. Also in the hospital is Herman. Max and Herman meet on the elevator. Herman is not in a good spot. Drinking and smoking two cigarettes at a time. <laughs> that was also hilarious. He literally lit a second cigarette as he has a cigarette in his mouth. It's so funny. Herman tells Max that him and Rosemary are done, coldly saying she's in love with a dead guy anyway. (laughs) Knocking on Rosemary's bedroom window, Max is seen on the roof in the rain. He is acting all confused, pretending as though a car hit him. There's even fake blood on his forehead. Rosemary falls for it and invites Max in. The bedroom is strange, filled with old toys and and model planes hanging from the ceiling. As, as we will discover, Rosemary lives in her dead husband's old bedroom. Max, not missing a beat, lays down on Rosemary's bed, which is a fucking dick move. He's soaking wet from the rain, and he just lays down on that bed. Are you kidding me? Get out yeah. of there. Max asks Rosemary what happened with Herman. She says, A, he's married. B, he hates himself. And C, he smashed up your bike. Max thinks that her problem isn't with Herman, but the fact she has not moved on. Again, she's literally laying in her husband's old bedroom. She, like, she hasn't moved on. Right. Max finally asks about, uh, Max finally asks how the husband died. Rosemary says he drowned. Max replies by saying his mother had cancer. Rosemary leans in to clean Max's head wound. He kisses her. At this point, she realizes it is fake blood. Max leaves out the same window he came through. (gasps) Rejected. So much rejection. Denied. (laughs) Max and Dirk flying a kite in the parking lot. A model plane then swoops down. It is Margaret's. Margaret says that Max has been a jerk to her and implies that they are the same. Her science fair project was based on fraudulent data. Which is exactly what Max is. They're all show and no, like, I forgot who said it to Max, but someone said, you're all show and no results. And, like, 
it's true up until this point. He, right. Max is putting on a show for everyone. That's his whole shtick. Like, sure, he's starting all these clubs. He's a go-getter, but he's a showman and a con man. And I think maybe that's why he's shocked when he gets the results that he gets. Right. Because he doesn't expect anyone to actually listen to him. He's a con man. He doesn't – he spent his whole – I'll save some of this for after for Final Thoughts, but it's like he spent his whole – he seems to have spent his whole life duping other people into what he wants, knowing that he won't get the results. That, like you said, like the way she speaks to him about um, what she perceives that he wants uh, sexually or in a relationship in the same way that he is uh, slowly being called out and revealed for the things that, for who he really is and the things that he really wants. And so what happens is it puts him in this where he acts like, he has it all together, and then all of a sudden you realize he doesn't. Yeah. Uh, um, very sexual. <laughs> very. It's very sexual. <laughs> As she leaves, Max begins to get his mojo back, telling Dirk to take dictation. He is going to start a kite club. Herman and Max meet in front of the barbershop. Max offers up either his punctuality or perfect attendance pin. Each he and Herman can wear a pin to symbolize their friendship. Herman then meets Bert and gets a haircut. In a breakfast club type montage, Herman and Max are dancing in Herman's factory and biking. They've decided to move forward with building the aquarium to win back Rosemary. Though his aquarium will be $8 million and next to not on the baseball diamond. However, Rosemary does not show up to the groundbreaking ceremony. Max comes up with a new plan to put on a play. Lead will be began. The play will also involve explosives. January, Gold Curtain, opening night of Max's new play, Heaven and Hell. Everyone has been invited, from Guggenheim to Dr. Peter Flynn, who is wearing a tie this time. <laughs> Rosemary's seat is right next to Herman's. Before the play begins, Max comes on the stage and dedicates it to Edward a Appleby and his mother and to tell the audience that under every seat are safety goggles and earplugs, which is exactly what you want to hear before you see a fucking play. The play begins. It is about Vietnam. Again, very appropriate for the age group. The play is riddled with explosives and the production design that seems impossible for any kid. During the intermission, Rosemary brings Herman a coffee. She then brushes his hair and they lock arms tenderly. The second act ends with Max and Margaret holding guns at one another, vowing to get married, which I guess describes their relationship. Everyone has stayed for the after party. Max and his father meet the Yangs, Margaret's parents. In a small but important character development, Max has moved past his embarrassment of his father. This is a turn for most of Wes Anderson's work, where the father comes back to the son. I just wanted to make a note of that. Usually in Wes Anderson movies, it's about the father reconnecting with the family. Right. Here, here it's about the son having to reconnect with his father, you know? Yeah. It's just a different spin on it, I guess. I'll get to my thoughts on all of that afterward, but yeah. I It's very interesting because it is different. I mean, I guess in like Royal Tenenbaums, like, Chaz has to reconnect with his father, not the other way around. You know, there are elements of it throughout his, uh, the rest of his work. Correct. But more specifically here, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Here, the son returns to the father. 
Rosemary even meets Bert. Herman asks Margaret if she would like to dance, which I gotta say was like probably the worst acted part of the movie. I don't know. This whole dance felt very like off to me. It felt very like... I mean, it's hard for me to criticize. The whole Wes Anderson's vibes are always intentionally awkward to me. So it's like, even though this is supposed to be a genuine moment, maybe that's the problem. Um, I think that is the problem. A lot of the moments throughout this after party just don't seem genuine to me. And it's it's supposed to be genuinely rapping, like in a serious way. Like, yeah, there's still some comedic moments, but it's supposed to mostly just say like, hey, we've had our fun and now like here's the point of it, you know? Herman asks Margaret if she would like to dance. She snaps, saying no. She is with Max. But Max says it's all right. Rosemary then takes off Max's glasses, and they begin to dance, looking into each other's eyes. A blue curtain closes. The end. There you go. He's got, he's got his closure. He literally opens and closes curtains. Yeah, I, I don't know. The, the, what's it called? This isn't my, has nothing to do with my final thoughts. It just has to do with the movie. I just wanted to say, like, it's weird the way that Rosemary and Max were looking into each other's eyes. I feel like this movie is about, like, I I don't know. Rosemary is just a very strange character to me. Well, I think they want to allude to the fact that there is undeniable sexual tension, but it's also like someone, one person's trying to respectfully treat it from an adult perspective and the other is treating it from a child's perspective. So it's kind of like there's these moments where they kind of meet in the middle. Like they will never hook up or anything like that because of there's still this immoral ground. There's still I, this. The moral of this movie is just we're lucky it didn't take place in Florida. <laughs> it would have been a very different movie. It would have been a very different movie. I think this movie, even coming out today, would have been a very different movie. I think audiences may have responded to it different. I can't really speak because Wes Anderson can get away with making uh, interactions, especially romantic. Disney makes this movie today. It's just so funny to think of it as a Disney movie. <laughs> but it's just very it's 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 very fitting for it being 1998. It's fitting for it being in the 90s. It's fitting for. Well, what was all right in the 90s is very different than what is all right today. That's my point. It's like, it's... Except on the topic of incest, I guess, that aged well. Although that's Royal Tenenbaums. We'll get there. Um, So, uh, you want to give your final thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I will say that, kind of like we were saying earlier, is this feels like a step up. This feels like a huge upgrade. I don't want to say huge upgrade, but it's, it's a significant step up from Bottle Rocket in the sense that, like we were saying, his of Wes Anderson finding his style. It's him um, completely, uh, not completely realizing his vision. Um, as I said last week, I think that his, um, he's kind of perfected whatever it is he's going for with more and more with each movie. But, but with Rushmore, it's like, it feels more and more like not just a very special coming of age him, but it, it almost feels a little bit like a perspective of Wes Anderson's own life, like if him closing chapters. Um, so much of this movie felt like as I've gotten older, it's like where I think about my life and I think about where I've closed chapters in in my own life with uh, whatever, with, with, with friends, social circles and school and jobs. And it's like your life changes, you know? And so this movie is all about characters who are trying to kind of 
close a kind of book in their own way. And they, they, they express it in different ways, be it a woman who's trying to deal with her husband's death or uh, someone never literally wanting to leave school. You know what I mean? And like, there's the, there are these themes that are brought together through quirky rom romantic comedy tropes. And it works because it's really just about everyone trying to move on and kind of grow up and kind of um, enter the next phase of their life. In a way, this kind of feels like Wes Anderson's uh, send off to childhood in a way, although Moonrise Kingdom, he revisits that in a very, very different way. But like you were saying about the divorce um, aspect, um, it creeps heavily into it this movie in a, a very specific way because like you said it's a son reaching out to the father and in a way this almost feels like Wes and Owen Wilson writing this from a child's perspective it's almost like you can imagine 17 year old Wes Anderson writing this story like hey like this is the story of like before he becomes quote-unquote an adult and in a sense it captures the sense of age that is very unlike almost anything he's done and so it's a very unique next step for him. I think it's still still kind of feels like his training wheels are coming off a little bit, but it still feels like early work, Wes Anderson. So, um, but like you had said earlier, like connecting with this movie now as an adult, like it definitely it grows on me. It definitely got better. I didn't. I never have loved Rushmore. I always thought it was very entertaining, but it. I saw it from a different perspective now that I'm older. I guess my final thoughts are just. I was hit with awe on two fronts watching the movie this time. Very much like you said, so I'm not going to like rehash it because you, you said it almost perfectly. I was in awe just of the leap in which he went from, from Bottle Rocket to this movie because like we said earlier in the podcast and like Josh just said, Bottle Rocket is good, don't get me wrong, but his style isn't like imprinted in that movie. This movie, it's his fingers are all over it. Like this is his template right, right here. This is him saying, these are going to be all my tricks and I'm going to run with it whether you like it or not. I haven't watched this movie in probably like a decade. I've only seen it once before. And I'm just awed that I didn't love this movie as much as I do right now. Maybe it's because when I watched it, I was in high school and it didn't hit me as hard because I'm watching it from a high schooler perspective and you know I guess I'm watching it from a perspective of like this kid is trying to fuck his teacher nothing like that is going on in my life I'm not friends with a 45 year old man running an industrial farm you know an industrial power plant um but as I watch it now like you said Josh it's telling the story of closing one chapter and entering another and to get personal on the podcast for a, mo for a moment, I feel like I'm going through a huge transition now simply because of COVID. You know, like before this whole pandemic, I had to be a go-getter because of my job. And then everything was just taken, like ripped out from under me. And I fell into like a little depression, like nothing too serious, don't get me wrong. But like that's what this podcast is for me is me like trying to take back some semblance of like authority in my life just like max telling 
Dirk to take dictation. I feel like every week I'm telling Josh to <laughs> take dictation when we make this podcast. This is it, man. Because I'm just like, you know, I'm trying to take back some semblance of control in my life. So I, I don't know. It just hit harder this time. It's more, it's such mature themes that I don't think hit as hard in high school. But uh, I guess those are my final thoughts. It's, uh, it, those, are, those are some final thoughts. That's real deep. That's very, very creative. Your words are, as uh, Yoda might say. Um, it, it's very interesting that you said just to look at this from the perspective of a kid trying to, trying to bang his teacher. Because in a sense, that's really all the, on the surface, that's what the movie is. And it's just funny watching it, you know, as you get older, far out of high school. And you're like, wow, you're like, um, it's kind of hitting me in a different way. Because it's, it's, cause Wes Anderson captures, in, I, in a way I can't even put into words, nostalgia in every single one of his movies. Oh, 100%. I, watch, I watch his movies and I feel like I'm just reliving a childhood, even though, like, like we had said, we hadn't watched a lot of these movies until we were in college age or like later. So it's like, it's very bizarre how he has this very warm and fuzzy way of capturing whatever it is that he does. And so it's funny to watch his movies especially one like this that feels so adolescent you're like no this is like hitting me at a different level like i connected more with bill murray in some awkward ways of him just not that i connect with bill murray but he's just his own very unique wonderful man but it's just even him just being this bumbling guy who's trying to awkwardly hopping over fences watching people from behind trees and you know he's smoking cigarettes and he's being like a, a creeper and he's kind of like even he's trying to find his own path and i'm like yo i like i get it like i feel that you know yeah um no, I and, get I, that. and i think in a sense it's like you said it's just this sense of trying to uh take back um the semblance in your life that was good that you worded how you worded that because that's that's in a way we're all we're all like max in our own way it's like if we're not ready to kind of just be forced into this next part of our lives but this is it you know and i'm sure i'm not the only one who feels like their life was just been ripped from under them you know like this covid thing is hitting everyone in hard and different ways that's it so uh you ready to give your pick of the week I am. I got it. Go for it. Um, my pick will be Rob Reiner's This is Spinal Tap. <laughs> That's a good one. The uh, rock and roll mockumentary um, way predates The Office. Um, arguably too ahead of its time. It has since gained a cult following. Um, but the whole idea of mocking hair metal and doing it in documentary style. And um, I mean, the cast is outstanding. Michael McKean, uh, Fred Willard, RIP. Um, it's got this like, um, the whole crew and everything about it, it's a absolutely outrageous, hilarious movie. And like I said, the um, that mockumentary style, man, like people weren't really doing that back in the day they were. And this was uh, 1984. So it's, you know what I mean? So um, you wouldn't see The Office for almost, 20 uh for 20 years you wouldn't see it so it's pretty bizarre to see how things have changed um uh in these times i'm sticking with my guns going for another uh comedy classic for me so that movie I, is a comedy classic and some like i know that some of the songs are supposed to be like terrible but some of them are actually pretty good like i yeah, have a couple that, like give us your money 
I have that uh, on my playlist because it's, oh, it's just, so good. Every time it comes on, I just laugh because it's like the most honest. Uh, it's honestly the most honest rock song you could possibly hear. It's you know, really yeah, give us your money. It's absolutely. It's very satirical, but also straightforward in saying what a lot of rock songs don't. <laughs> and uh, from my pick of the but, week, you know yes. what? You inspired me, Josh. I'm going to go with another Rob Reiner movie because he just lost his father. R.I.P. to Carl Reiner. Poor one out for Carl. I'm going to go with The Princess Bride. It's Inc- incredible choice funny it's a fantasy it's a drama it has literally all the genres it like wes anderson movies it has the storybook quality literally like a grandfather reading to his grandson it has some of the most like iconic lines of all time i'm ingo matoya you killed my father prepare to die it's you know it's amazing it's inconceivable it's filled with one-liners filled with just brilliant dialogue and it's just fun, you know, like pure fun and um, so self-referential, you know, even if you don't like the love mushy gushy stuff, it's like, you know, they cut away to the grandson. He's like, ew, do we really have to be talking about this grandpa? He's like, oh, okay. I can ver- shut the book. <laughs> I can leave. <laughs> it's very self-aware. Um, it arguably like killed uh, fantasy in a comedic sense because it's like they did like a, it's like it's satire but it's still respectful to the material um, and it was blended in such a way that it's like it's never really been done that way since I mean it really uh, is a one of a kind kind of movie yeah I miss uh, I miss good Rob Reiner yeah like he has some of the, like some of the best hits like one after one. Can I just read you a list real quick? Oh, he did a good streak. Please read it. This is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, which I've never seen, so I don't know. But after that is Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally, Misery, A Few Good Men, and then uh, The American President. Then after that, it kind of dips a little. But that's, that's like a thing. good hit right that's there. That's a really good batting average right there. That's a like that's a solid batting average right there. I mean to even stand by even to go from when Harry met Sally to misery to, to misery is like shows how much range he has because the tonally those movies could not be more different all right everyone I think that uh concludes this episode of whose filmography is it anyway I uh, agree yeah as <laughs> always you can follow me on Instagram at Mr. Filmart and you know Working on that, uh, working on that, that page. Yeah. No, working on that page. Yeah. Hopefully, by the time this comes out, there will actually be a page. We need uh, to just come on. We just need the balls that Max, uh, Jason Schwartzman has in this film, and just we need to just. I have a comment that I want to say, but you haven't watched Watchmen, so I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say it. The Watchmen show. Yeah. Uh, I heard it. I saw the first episode. Was not very pleased. I heard it gets a lot better after that. It, it's not just the first episode. Like all of Lindelof's work, it is a very time. slow burn. You know, the first couple of episodes, things are just not making sense. Everything is like, where are we? Like, what's happening? And then, like by episode four, things get starting, like start getting stitched together. And then by the time you get to the last episode, you're like, holy shit! So it's and worth it. You understand by the end why everything was just like where it was in the beginning you're like what just happened um 
I am a huge, as you know, I'm a huge Lindelof fan, and I watched the first episode. I was like, okay, this isn't, uh, I know this is going to be promising because I trust this man. And then I was just like, episode two would happen. I never watched it. I was like, yeah, I'll catch up. And you know me with catch up on anything. Uh, a week became four months, and then it's like all of a sudden the show was over, and I was like, wait, but I missed the whole thing. And I heard it by the end. It got so good. Yeah, I highly recommend it. There's my um, second pick of the week. All right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, that concludes this week's episode. Uh, we'll see you next time when we cover the Royal Tenenbaums, which I'm actually very excited for. I'm very aroused. Very aroused. All right, everyone. See you next time. Good night, everybody. Thank mm-hmm. you.